Hey, Chris. So, what have you done since I've seen you the last, what, three hours ago? I got on the internet to say happy birthday to my mother. Today's my mom's birthday, and it'll be a few weeks. Happy birthday, Chris's mom! After her birthday, yes. You've met my lovely mother up there in Indiana. I've had dinner with her. Yeah, who I would normally get to see for Thanksgiving, but I won't this year. So, I miss my mom. Happy birthday, mom. Love you. I miss my dad, too, and my sister, and my nephews. (laughs) But it's not their birthday today. It is not. Well, that's exciting. I managed to make chili, cornbread, and cupcakes in the three hours since I last talked to you. Damn. And work on my AAAS talk. Damn. That's like 300% productivity rate. I think I've forgotten how to put together, you know, 10 to 15 minute talks at this point. But this time around, I'm building the PowerPoint and then planning on figuring out what I'm going to say later. That might be the opposite of what I should do. No, that's what I always do. Okay, good. Because putting together bullet points and pictures is much more my mental capacity right now than actually figuring out and fleshing out the talk itself. That's exactly how I always start. And then I'm like, okay, what am I going to say when I see this? What am I going to say when I see this? And then tweak it, tweak it, tweak it, tweak it. That's exactly what I'm doing. Well, hey, our guest is in the waiting room. You should introduce her because she is your colleague at Alabama. Sure, okay. My friend and colleague, Dr. Courtney Helfrich, joined our department last fall. I'll let her tell her own origin story, but she is also a biocultural medical anthropologist. And I've been wanting to get her on because, of course, I love her research, hence us hiring her. But she is the first author on a new paper with her doctoral advisor, who we've also had on the show. Uh, So among other authors on this paper is Dr. Courtney Meehan, and the paper is called Life History and Socioecology of Infancy. came out in September for early view in American Journal of Physical Anthropology. That's a wonderful introduction. Let's bring her on. Oh, she's at the University of Alabama, in case anyone didn't know where I am. Welcome to the show, Courtney. I know you all at Alabama are winding down your semester and it's like the dragging yourselves across the finish line. But rather than dwell, let's talk about something fun and interesting like your anthropology origin story. So how did you get into anthropology and decide to pursue it as a career? Kind of a winding story. Uh, Well, not that winding. As an undergrad, I double majored in anthropology and archaeology and leaned more towards the archaeology side of it. So went to Kubifora for my field school, which got me interested in paleoanthropology, which, you know, of course, I had these big dreams of going to grad school and and seeking out hominids, but uh, instead started doing contract work. I actually met my partner at Kubifora. It was one of those field school romances that worked out. And so we did CRM work for a couple years, shovel bumming, saved up enough money to go spend three months in Thailand, where we volunteered on a given sanctuary, hoping, oh, this will be our foot in the door to looking at primates as models for early hominid behavior. Then we came home, got back into doing CRM, had a couple kids, so, you know, really took things off the table for a while. But having those kids is actually what was the real impetus for me going to grad school and becoming an anthropologist. I had these two super needy little creatures who they're born so altricial, they need so much from you and for so long. And that got me really interested in the evolution of childhood and why in comparison to other primates, it is so long. And that led me to grad school at Washington State University. 
Can I interrupt for a brief second and ask yeah, a question? Absolutely. Because you said something that I'm not sure I've ever heard before. And so I'm curious, where did you go to undergrad where anthropology and archaeology are two separate majors? University of Virginia. It's one of the few that has them as separate, yeah. So, I mean, do they have a huge number of faculty in both to kind of justify it being two separate departments? I don't think so, but it's been 20 odd years now, so. Okay, and then one more, is like bioanth separate as well or just archaeology is separate? Well, as undergrad, it was just archaeology and anthropology. And we actually didn't have a strong bioanth. One of my advisors, when I said I want to go study evolutionary anthropology and work with modern populations, she's like, oh, that's, that's been debunked. Why would you do that? <laughs> and, <Wow. laughs> not, not that evolution had been debunked, but the idea of applying <laughs> evolutionary theory among modern humans, you know, that it was mm. too much like sociobiology and the misinterpretations okay. that, you know, stem from that application of it. So. Okay, sorry for the interruption, but I'm just, <laughs> I don't think I have ever heard that before. Sometimes you hear like bioanth breaking off and going with the biology right. department, but never have I heard archaeology. That's fascinating. Wahoo-wah, as they say. But, <laughs> but yeah, so I started out looking at the evolution of human childhood, but specifically I was interested in the role of peers in that kind of enculturation process. But like a lot of master's student field work, it didn't pan out. So I ended up working with one of my advisors on a aggression study. So my master's actually focuses on aggression among a hunter-gatherer population. And then for my PhD, I started working with Dr. Courtney Meehan, who I know you've had on the show before, and looking at the evolution of childhood under her guide, but separate from her work on cooperative breeding. I'm interested in middle childhood, because that's the period that really seems to be stretched out in our species. And so I started collecting data on that. And then, you know, you've been talking to this about the grad students, that aha moment, you know, and, and keeping reading and staying open, because I read a paper by Marco Del Giudici on agenarchy. And I was like, wait a minute, this is what pulls it all together. This is, you know, there's the biological, the cultural, the cognitive all coming together. And that set me on my current pathway. So when I finished in 2016, it took a while to find a job, but finally fully employed after some adjuncting and consulting in public health and having another baby, actually. <laughs> and uh, here we are. I was going to say, she has more than the two. You're missing the Adrenarchy period right now since you have the two. So her oldest is classmates with my kids, and then she's got another high school-aged daughter, and then she's got a toddler. So I actually, as I read your paper with the, all the different people caretaking, I could just see Oriana doing the caretaking at the picnic the other day. Exactly. And it really, it helps so much to have that breadth of age ranges in our family because uh, the girls have been incredible helping take care of their baby brother. Don't so, know what we would have done during this pandemic months without right. them. They've been huge. So why don't you take us into this paper? I know this is based on Courtney Meehan's work as well. And you've got a list of co-authors who I don't know, but maybe you could tell us a little bit about I mentioned the, the title of it in the intro, but I'll say it again. It's Life History and Socioecology of Infancy, and it's available for early view from the American Journal of Physical Anthropology. So Courtney Meehan's dissertation work was on cooperative breeding, and she got a career grant way back when to expand that cross-culturally and then delving into other factors. But it, so it stems from her dissertation work, and then she more recently has been doing work on human milk. And so we kind of combined the data that she's collected from all these cooperative breeding studies across the years and the methods that she employed in her human milk studies 
to look at how diversity and evenness of the alloparental network affects maternal investment strategies. So I'm invested in this because life history theory is what shapes my own research agenda. Um, and we've been working together for over a decade now, first as her student and now as a colleague. And so we've been kind of playing off of each other and in the interest that she's got this massive, incredible data set. So we have one of the largest or if not the largest, methodologically consistent cross-cultural studies. There's over 200 mother-infant dyads in this study. So we were able to look at the composition of the alloparental network and see you know, the breadth and diversity of caregivers across cultures. And one of the biggest findings is that allocare is consistent across infancy and early childhood. The networks are generally pretty diverse, which allows allo parents to kind of offset the cost of investing in someone else's kids, right? And so not only does that breadth and diversity of alloparental care affect maternal investment strategies, so does life history characteristics. So things vary across mom's age, infant's age, developmental status, parental ethno theory. There's all these factors that go into it that having this huge group and need this methodological approach allowed us to investigate. So that was really the overarching finding is that these are flexible networks, that they're diverse, and that diversity allows moms to reduce the amount of direct caregiving they provide. It's not, it makes it sound like moms aren't taking care of their babies. Of course they're taking care of their babies. We're not talking about massive amount of times, but in order to have such altricial offspring and have so many dependents at a single time, we need help, right? And so that's the way that we're able to stack these offspring is through that AlloCare network. I feel like you make that point in here, right? You're saying like, you know, we have all this network of people taking care of it, but the reality is mom is still doing most of Absolutely. the work, right? Moms like, everywhere do the lion's share of investment through direct caregiving. But the field of cooperative breeding studies has been shaped so much by looking at fathers, at siblings, and grandmas. They've long been like the ace in the hole, right? They're the backup caregiver, but they're not always available, these individuals. And it's a risky strategy to just put all your eggs in one basket like that. And so that, along with some of the other cooperation work that's come out in the past decade, really shows the flexible nature of human social networks. And that was something we really wanted to dig into because there's still so much left uncovered or to uncover in terms of investigating this. So we just wanted to explore how that composition shaped maternal strategies too. So I was just thinking, as you said that, the level of risk involved with how many folks you can actually depend on for various childcare and then the application of that to right now as parents are trying to juggle their work and if their kids are fully online, what role grandparents play, and then you get concerned about various bubbles interacting and all of that. And I feel like this alloparent study could explode during the, you know, the pandemic era of trying to understand how families navigate this while also still trying to maintain a level of safety for each individual group. It's definitely, <laughs> thankfully, thankfully we weren't operating under pandemic conditions, <laughs> but yeah, I it can, is I interesting though. Like um, there, Barry Hewlett has done research among the ACA and other groups when it comes to Ebola and how they handle pandemics. And they've actually got really strong strategies for managing illness that we could learn from in terms of what we do and the practices we hold. But we're so, well, it's not a critique. Biomedical <laughs> interventions are fabulous things, right? But we often don't recognize what we have to learn from other cultures in terms of those strategies. Yeah, and so speaking of which, I know within this work that you also want to use what you learned among these other cultures to try to understand something about our past. So maybe tell us a little bit of that you know, evolutionary life history connection. Yeah, 
Well, I want to be abundantly clear that we actually take great care to ensure that we're not saying this is like a one-to-one -one comparison because these are obviously very much modern populations that we're working with. But that's the point, right? Like that there's diverse sizes, scales of culture, there's diversity in subsistence modes, there's diversity in parental ethno theory, the strategies we use to take care of our kids. And so when we can look across cultures and find similar patterns, that can be really revealing of our evolutionary past. And so that's one of the reasons to look at these different groups is it actually brings a lot more to the table. It takes away some of that bias that just asking these questions among Euro-American populations or Western populations brings to the table. So, you know, we, we felt like it's really important to have a greater diversity in the literature, right? If you rely just on what we know from Euro-American populations, it kind of limits the understanding of the full range of diversity in humans. And so that's, uh, but yeah, so <laughs> to actually answer your question, in these smaller scale societies, it's easier to map that social network. The number of people you interact with is kind of bounded. And so that's one of the benefits of it in that we can get a fuller picture of all the interactions. But it's not like there's something particularly special. It's really just, again, about bringing that diverse subsistence modes, parenting strategies, these sorts of things to our table, bring them into the conversation. So... Courtney, if you'll forgive me, I want to ask you not a left field question, because it's really more central to the work that I know you for and what you've talked to me about at Infinitum, which is the wonderful work you primarily did, right? Working there for your dissertation, the predictions that you had, as you said, of what you would think small populations would show relative to the West, right? And then because of political stuff, you had to start in a completely new site and found that basically there's a lot more variation out there than anyone has considered before. I think you published that one in AJHB, am I right? That one was AJHB, yeah. So, so <laughs> you, wanna, uh, you wanna hit the highlights of that for us yeah, to put your work uh, in the context? Like I said, I, I look at adrenarchy, which is the biological event hypothesized to underpin that middle childhood transition, you know, that five to seven transition when kids start to get really annoying, asking like, why all the time? And they, you know, but they also start to make sense and we can have them complete tasks. And it's why they start to go to school around that age range, which it is a range. And so I wanted to look at that in different populations because really there's been very little done in smaller scale populations investigating adrenarchy. I felt like, okay, I'm going to start with three-year-olds and make sure I capture that onset and really get a good idea of this biological event and some of the factors that might influence its timing. So the hormone associated with this is dehydroepiandrosterone and it's sulfate. We'll just call it DHEAS for short. And it's produced right after birth or prenatally and right after birth by the fetal zone of the adrenal gland. And then that fetal zone typically involutes, disappears by six months of age. So there's, there should be no DHEAS between like six months and at the earliest three years old when islands of zona reticularis, which is part of the adrenal gland, start to form. And usually we see it come online by age five, six, seven, and that's that transition point. So I got back from the Central African Republic with my samples from the Akin Gandu, and we started analyzing them and found that these young kids had their highest concentrations of DHEAS. Collected the data among the Sadama of Southwestern Ethiopia, same thing, really high levels of DHEAS among three-year-olds, declining to age five, 
six, seven, and around eight or nine, they start taking off again. And so the, the Adrianarchy event is around eight or nine in comparison to in the West where it's between five and seven, so a bit later by comparison. But I couldn't figure out why it was so high among these little kids. It's not supposed to be like that, right? And it's not like you can investigate this in another way, like <laughs> at least not ethically. So, and that's the only way I'm willing to investigate this to be clear. But so, you know, we started thinking about it and it has to be that the fetal zone must still be producing DHEAS. And the other thing to know about it is it's neuroprotective in areas with high rates of malaria. And so both of these populations, even though they're across the continent from each other, all three of them, the Akan and Gandhi live in association in Southwestern Central African Republic. And then, like I said, the Saddam are in Southwestern Ethiopia, but you know, might as well be across the United States for how close they are give people an idea. And same thing was happening. And so both of these contexts are higher risk. There's higher, much higher rates of infant and child mortality. And malaria is widespread across all of sub-Saharan Africa. And so it just seems that this is an adaptive response to the environmental context. And so it's, it's just been really neat. I was hoping to go back last summer. I don't know about this coming summer, but there's definitely more to explore in terms of what is actually going on, because I don't have that zero to three captured in any of the three populations. So to really understand what the factors are affecting the timing of this and the patterning of it and how, what the effects downstream are, there's still a lot of work to do, which actually segs into the work I'm proposing to do going forward, which is looking more broadly at these sensitive periods and developmental switch points. Because if we see these differences in the timing of agenarchy, and we know globally there's this trend towards early puberty, what happens when a sensitive period in development is truncated or shortened? And, you know, what happens downstream in terms of the effects on time of reproduction, number of kids, all these other life history variables. So actually, Dr. McClure, Dr. Stephanie McClure, who's our colleague here at UA, and I are working on developing that grant proposal and looking for students who might be interested in investigating this as well, uh, just to get that plug out there. So yeah, it's really kind of led to more questions than it's answered. It seems like there are certain periods of childhood that are largely ignored in research. They'll focus on, you know, right before they hit puberty, and then of course during puberty, and then right after birth. But why do you think that is, that people largely ignored this area that, like you said, could have these really critical developmental periods that could have long-lasting lifetime effects? I mean, middle childhood has kind of been under-investigated in general, because it's not got the kind of adorableness of infants, right? Where they're just like these round faced, altricial little big eyed needy blobs. And then with puberty, with adolescence, you have kids who are now reproductively capable and taking on more adult social roles. And so this middle childhood period, even though there's so much going on cognitively in terms of development, and there's a lot of evidence that even as it's not overt, the kind of sex-specific pathways are being activated in the brain. We haven't hit the organizational aspects of adolescence, but we're seeing a lot actually happening. That's where kids get really invested in gender roles, right? And figuring out more about gender and what that means. They're looking more to their peers for feedback on whether or not what they're doing is appropriate or cool, right? So they're moving away from the family and are more socially oriented, but it doesn't have the big drama of the adolescent transition, despite that it is marked, not overtly, but in ways that are measurable, that people do see across cultures, that, that that five to seven transition marks a new age category all around the world. And so it, it is noted, but it, it lacks the drama, the flair of those other periods. 
you mentioned the work you're doing with Stephanie. I was actually going to ask because I know you guys got a little internal grant funding for some stuff in the local school system. So is the project that you just mentioned related to that? The project you're referencing is the CARI project, the Collaborative Arts Research Initiative, Joint Pilot for Arts Research Study. That's the one taking place at Central High School here in Tuscaloosa, and it's an anthropology and arts training program. So it's free arts training for students, but we're starting out with an anthropological component to get them to identify different themes in their lives. There are things that they think are really great about where they live, about their family, about, you know, their, their lives in general, things that they find problematic, and then working to pull out themes that will shape their arts training. Their, it's voice and dance training offered by two of our colleagues here at UA, Alvon Reed in dance and Dr. Alex, Alexis Davis-Hazel in voice. And so at the end of that, it's going to culminate in a cabaret, but it's informed by the themes that come out of their lives. So it's really youth-led and going to be or organized and initiated a lot of it by them. They're going to be using video and photo voice and group conversations to synthesize their experiences into those themes and build their skills in transforming and translating them into a, this cabaret performance. So we're really excited and we're hypothesizing that it's going to reduce stress as measured both through cortisol and other measures of allostatic load, improve well-being, so we've got the kind of established surveys that we'll use at the beginning and end. And we're hoping it will encourage them to engage more productively with their communities, to feel empowered to do so, you know, to recognize their talents. So we're taking an explicitly positive youth development orientation in this. And if it's successful, if we're right, we're hoping to get more money and bring it to other schools, because ultimately we think this does fit into that sensitive period and, and the kind of factors in the community at home that really shape the way kids experience the world. And so, you know, it's bringing in some of that biological, some of the psychosocial and cultural components. So it is related, but technically a separate project. This sounds a little like our improv study, Chris, as well as your Pentecostal study. Uh, there's some really interesting connections there, although, of course, not with development because we work with adults. But still, that's great. Right. So I asked this question and, I, and I'm so sad because I think the answer is going to be no. But I asked, because you work with Chris and you're in a department together, do you have any fun, embarrassing stories about him you might like to share with our audience? Well, I actually just started here a year ago. And so most of my time here has been during the pandemic. So I've gotten to see Chris like maybe four times over the course of the last year. So unfortunately, I don't have any. Four um, times should be plenty of chances for Chris to embarrass himself. <laughs> I actually interact with Loretta, Chris's wife, more than I do with Chris, because we're actually uh, working together on a project in the schools as well, much less formalized, but trying to get an anti-racist or social justice component to the curriculum installed there. So I'll say one of the worst things about the pandemic is that Courtney's right across the hall from me, and I like to pop in and talk to her, and I can't. She's one of my favorite people here to pop in and talk to. But I have a fun story. It's not embarrassing. Since both of our kids go to Central High School, our kids don't actually need to be there for us to feel comfortable going to the high school football games. And I, I wrote about this in my book. So this is why it's on my mind. It was toward the end. And I can't remember what the context was in the book. What I remember is talking to Courtney about how much I love watching high school football and the band and the flags and all the stuff in a way that I didn't when I was younger. And Courtney said, yes, I love the costumes they all wear. She's like, football players don't like to think of what they're wearing as costumes, but I see them as costumes. And that blew my mind. 
So now I'm constantly engaged in the costumery, how football teams are constantly changing. They're going their old style uniforms and they can call them uniforms if they want, but, but she's right. They are totally costumes. I've just been reading about the ritualized warfare and looking into the anthropology of sports. I thought it'd be cool to bring in for actually the evolution working group that Chris and I are both involved with as well. The Allele series, I was hoping we could bring in somebody to talk about that because it makes sense here at Bama, right, to bring in an anthropologist of football, of ritualized warfare, talk about the costumes. So you had already mentioned a little bit that uh, you were looking for students for this grant that you are putting together with Stephanie McClure in the department. Um, but is there anything else you might like to promote or advertise and make sure our listeners hear? I mean, you know, I have a lot of different, I have a million different ideas, right? Don't we all? Every question we ask leads to new questions. So I'm happy to work with students who are interested in behavioral endocrinology, nutritional status, sensitive periods in child development, cross-cultural or evolutionary investigations of childhood, well, given the, the status of both CAR and more recently, there's been some instability in Ethiopia looking at the effects of environmental instability, be it social or political or physical environment. Those are all areas that kind of fall under the umbrella of my research line. So happy to entertain any of this. And as grad director, I will say we are taking applications for our MA and PhD and MA and PhD dual degree programs with the MPH. Our deadline, if you'd like money, which most people do, is January 15th. Courtney, we always like ending on kind of a note and it's asking about what sort of things do you do for work-life integration, which I imagine was really interesting having teenagers and a toddler while also navigating academia. What sort of things do you do for fun? You know, I read that question. I was like, ah, that's funny. <laughs> so most of my free time is spent with my kids and my partner. Might be coming up with new ways to embarrass them, like learning all the slang ensuring that I'm on TikTok and Instagram. Loretta and I have that in common too, <laughs> really embarrassing the kid with the slang. Hashtag um, cool moms. Yeah, so, so cool. Totally cool moms. I love hiking when it's possible. We take the kids on hike the nice hikes until they will keep walking until they stop complaining how that works. Sitting around a fire. I just got a new fire pit. I'm super excited to get that going. Volunteering takes up the last little bit of free time, but I'm hoping to better integrate that into my work and so I can feel good about making contributions to the people who are willing to work with me in the first place. And that's something I'm really excited about as well. Um, our department just formed an official decolonization committee, and we're really working hard to kind of break down a lot of the barriers that have left people out of anthropology, whether in engaging in the research or, or just feeling safe in these programs. Since anthropology has had kind of a ugly history of perpetuating a lot of racism, of exploiting small scale populations, you know, of not kind of bringing back the work to the people we work with or collaborating, truly collaborating, really developing research partnerships with these populations. So I'm excited to be involved in that and kind of do a better job with integrating the, the people who give me that time, such an amazing thing. Well, that's a lot. You, you somehow squeeze in a whole lot into each day, it sounds like. You are, I think, much more efficient than I am, uh, and I don't have kids. So. I wouldn't say I'm doing any of these things well. I just have a lot of things I like to do. You know, wasting time watching crappy reality TV or uh, the Great savvy British baking movies. show. <laughs> Although that? that's not crappy. Great British baking show, but that's not crappy. That's delightful. Oh, no, we're talking like bachelorette level here. We're not talking <laughs> high quality. I find it fascinating. Although my students just turned me on to RuPaul's Drag Race, and that is a fantastic show. So 
How did Loretta not? She's obsessed with that. Well, you gotta talk to her. And, <laughs> but, and yeah, I can't believe I didn't know about it, honestly. It's, I guess, having kids in grad school and that sort of stuff. Bailey but. watches reality shows with Loretta to such an extent that he's realized his career aspirations are to be television production reality show. Awesome. Wow. Now, I, grad school, one of my guilty pleasures was totally Jersey Shore. I'm a little <laughs> embarrassed to admit it, but it, there is something like fascinating watching those dynamics play out. I mean, if it's not a bizarre form of anthropology, what is, right? <laughs> so true. I used to use Charm School and probably Flavor of Love and all those things is like the examples in class for like life history stuff and evolutionary psychology blah 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 so it's all good it's it's work You're justification it. we're, we're justifying this, this, this guilty pleasure <laughs> anyway courtney like this has been really exciting for me chris gets to talk to you and chris gets well i guess i kind don't of i get to zo i'm zooming her now you did. you did get to you and that will be future. <laughs> for me it was really lovely getting a chance to meet you and hear about your work i very much enjoyed it it was great to meet you too